The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about all sorts of issues of privacy, especially in the area of California. And we are so lucky because we are having one of my very, very favorite guests, one of my very favorite people, Joan McNabb, who is the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection. If you haven't heard her before, you're going to really enjoy this. But let me tell you a little bit about her background. She's been the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection since it opened back in 2001. And this was the very first in the nation office which is a resource and advocate on privacy issues. In addition to providing information and education for consumers, the office also publicly pro- publishes privacy best practices and for businesses and for organizations and for government. And Joan McNabb is a certified information privacy professional with a specialization in government and information technology. And she serves on the Privacy Ad Advisory Committee to the United States Department of Homeland Security, and she is a fellow with the Poneman Institute, which is a research center on privacy and information security policy. Interestingly enough, before she even went to the, uh, became the chief of the Office of Privacy Protection, Joan had over 20 years experience in public affairs and marketing in both the public and private sectors, including five years with an international marketing company in France, which was a very exciting time for her. So we are so thrilled to have her with us. I'm just going to give the website that you can learn more about the great things that the Office of Privacy does, and that is privacy.ca.gov. Joan, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Northern California. You're very welcome, Mari. Happy to be here again. Yes. Now, you guys have been through some really rough times because the California legislature has been really having a difficulty with our finances. So what about the budget cuts and how are you coping up there? Well, uh, we are coping and like uh, much of government and much of the private sector, we've had to tighten our belt. Uh, our budget for the fiscal year that started in July is uh, half of what it was in the previous year. So we've always been a small operation. We're even smaller now, and so we have to be um, smarter and work harder. Exactly. And I know that you work hard as it is. <laughs> and I know you have less help, but you're just doing more work. Now, in the 10 years that you've been in operation since, wow, since 1101, um, 
you've seen a lot of trends in what people are concerned about with regard to privacy. Can you give us an idea of what you've seen and how it's changed? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that makes the whole issue of privacy so interesting as well as concerning is, is that it's evolving. It's influenced a lot by technology, as we know, which is also evolving in wonderful ways and ways that have different impacts. So we've been kind of looking back over 10 years lately, you know, to sort of get ready for this. And one of the a couple of the patterns that, that we can see is identity theft has always been a big issue that people contact us about. I think that's the, the most well-known type of privacy harm. People recognize that as a privacy harm. Uh, it, in the early days, it, would be, it was about two-thirds of the calls and emails that we got were about identity theft. The last couple of years, it's less than half. Mm. Which, which It's not that identity theft has... I mean, it has declined some, somewhat, but it's not that it, it isn't on people's minds. I, I suspect that on, on the one hand, um, some of the most common types people are, have learned how to deal with, like someone using your existing credit card. There's been a lot of information out about how to deal with that sort. The, the more problematic kind, somebody opening new accounts or what we still get calls about. So identity theft is a smaller share of, of our calls. It's more in numbers because we've gotten more calls and emails. Um, what's come up significantly is concerns <clears throat> me, about online privacy. <clears throat> and online privacy can be very, very scary since more and more people are online. Yeah, and, and some the kinds of things that people come to us about, like the most common thing that, that it, people come to us about it on the online privacy area is they are very distressed to discover that their information, things like their name and address, are on a whole bunch of websites that they have no knowledge of, they don't know how it got there, and they can't believe that there isn't a law that says that can't happen without their permission. Mm. And it's it's you know, it's challenging to explain to people um about the role that public records play in as a source for data brokers who then put, put information online. Uh, I think that's a policy issue that, that uh, policymakers are dealing with. It, it, see, it feels to people, and it certainly does to me, that there's a qualitative difference between having your name and address and phone number in a phone book, you know, on a shelf somewhere, and having it on the World Wide Web. Yes. It, even if it's, I mean, it's not a legal issue at this point, it, but it feels like a privacy issue. And we've seen some movement in recognizing that from the California legislature in that certain protected classes of people, certain special classes of people, have, have statutory right to have that information removed from websites. And that's like public officials, like judges and law enforcement um, Newly, one of the new laws that was just passed, uh, domestic violence victims who are enrolled in the Secretary of State's Address Confidentiality Program. We'd like to see that right extended to more people. Exactly. Now, you know, before we get to all the new laws, because I know that we have a lot to talk about with that, I just wonder, what do you tell them? I mean, basically, the, the law is not always in their favor. Yeah, so, and, so, you know, how do you, how do you tell them? Well, we explain about public records 
we acknowledged that um, you know we that they are concerned about this and that it's, I don't think it's an adequate response to just say, well, you know, there's not, it's not against the law, goodbye. Right. <laughs> we, we point to some of the ways in which law has been changing. Um, we give them some advice on, on uh, what they can do um, to remove their information from some sites, although not all. And if, if they seem particularly interested in it as a policy issue, we, we recommend that they contact their elected officials and, and voice their concerns. Right. So what do you tell them to do? Because I know there are people listening here that are saying, well, gee, what do you tell people to do? How, how are they going to remove this information? Yeah. Well, the, the really good uh, source on that, which we have linked on our online privacy page, is actually from, from the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. They have a, a really good fact sheet on online data brokers, and it's, there's a link to it right on their home page called Online Data Brokers. It's also on, on our online privacy page, and it gives you um, the links to those websites that do allow people to have their information removed. That is not the majority of them, I'm sorry to say, but there are a number that do. Yes. And so it, it tells them that, and uh, so, you know, that's one of the resources we give people. We also have a fact sheet called Leave Me Alone. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, that gives some a bunch of suggestions on how not to get on to some of the sort, the online and offline lists in the first place. Yeah, and, and I think even though a company may not be on the list that says that they will remove it, I think it's probably a good idea to send the letter Absolutely. to them and try and ask them and maybe copy to your legislature and maybe to the Office of Privacy Protection and let them know that you're asking. You know, just yeah. that might just help. Yes, we, we, all, we always tell people to, to uh, express their preferences to businesses, even if businesses aren't offering them the opportunity, let them know. If they hear from enough people, it can lead them to change their policy. Exactly. And so let's talk about some of the newly enacted laws in 2011. Can you go over some of those important ones? This was a a pretty good year for privacy legislation. There were a a number of of, uh, fairly significant bills. Yes. Um, I think one of the ones that... that, uh, it's very interesting. It has to do with breach notice. It was SB 24. Um, this was a bill that was uh, passed by the legislature, essentially the same bill, I think three times in the past three years and was vetoed. And this time the governor signed it. The new governor signed it. Right. Yeah. Right. So that Governor Brown signed it. And what it does is it it's intended to make sure that people who get a notice that their personal information was on was involved in a data breach, you know, at their bank or some company they do business with, um, that the letter contains enough specific information that the person getting it will know what to do to protect themselves. Yes, because a lot of the times they'll just say that there's a breach and you don't know whether your social security exactly. number is in there. You don't know if there is other account information in there. So this is really great. And that's Joe Samidian, who's been a really great proponent of, uh, and he's been on our show as well. And he's the chairman of the California Senate Privacy Committee. So he's been a super friend of privacy. The the other good thing about that bill, there's another piece of it that people won't see in in breach notices, but but I think it has the possibility of creating some long-term real benefit, 
and that is the requirement that the entities sending out the breach notices send a sample copy to the Attorney General. Yes. And from our conversations with them, we understand that they are going to make these notices available on their website. So this won't have anybody's name on it. You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Or anybody's personal information in it. It's just be the, the sort of the shell. And what, what that means is there will be a place that security experts and academic researchers and my office, for example, can go to to get a fuller picture of what's going on in data breaches to get an under, help us get an understanding of what are the vulnerabilities and weaknesses and what are the threats that are attacking them to come up with some better recommendations on how to prevent it in the first place. Yes, and now you'll even get better information because you'll know what kind of information was lost. Yes, absolutely. So that's a good one, SB24. Yes, that was great. Okay. A- another... Um, Another nice one is uh, AB 22, which also is a bill that had been vetoed in the past and was signed by Governor Brown. And this is a bill that puts some significant limits on employers' use of credit checks, mm-hmm. not employees. So this this isn't background checks. This is credit checks. The credit the, reports. Yes, credit reports. The the intention here is is. Um, to address the situation where somebody's credit rating isn't directly relevant to their fitness for a job, you know, that the unthoughtful use of credit reports to decide if somebody's fit to hire um, can can be very harming. Uh, somebody who, for example, is out of out of a job might indeed not have very good credit after a period of time, and the idea that because you lost your job and have bad credit, you can't get a job. You know, it just doesn't seem right at all. Right. It's a vicious cycle, though. Yeah. And not only that, sometimes there is a divorce or sometimes there's yes. medical medical bills that yes. have caused this. And with bad, a, bad credit doesn't mean somebody is a criminal. Exactly. And, and there are some exceptions in this for uh, law enforcement, employers, and um, financial financial. Industry. industry, yes. People with fiduciary responsibilities, managers, but but sort of the average employee would would not um, it would it would be good for them. I think it's good, and there's a lo- there are several states that don't even allow credit reports at all to be yes. used by employers. So I think this is a great step in the right direction, especially due to our economy. What's been going on? Yeah. it's just been people have been living on on credit cards, and that has caused a great deal of problem for them. But it's you know, so this is great. Good news. Two good news. All right. And another one having to do with identity theft is SB 208, Senator Alquist. And this this is about restitution. Uh, It's been very difficult in in court for an identity theft victim who is so fortunate as to have the thief prosecuted, which is clearly a minority. Or even to find the thief. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So if they found, if they caught the thief and brought him to court and the courts have tended to, when considering restitution, have tended to look at only if you like paid the debts that the thief incurred in your name, right? Which you may not have done at all if you've been following our advice. You of course didn't do that, right? Or, or the advice of your books, Mari. Yes. Uh, nevertheless, as a victim of identity theft, you may be stuck with, in order to protect yourself, um, having credit monitoring for years at a time and spending time off work in order to pull your credit records all back into shape. And so this new 
uh, law uh, specifically authorizes courts to award restitution for, for a period of time necessary to make the victim whole, not just what you've paid right now. And you might have even needed an attorney if you yes. were a victim of criminal identity Absolutely. theft or some or mortgage fraud so or something. It could be really substantial. Exactly. So that's a good one, that's, too. Yeah, that's a good one. It'll help uh, attorneys in court representing victims. But I think what you said in the beginning is really important because we know that only about 10% of, of the perpetrators are even found and of yeah. those that, you know, only about 10% of those cases are even prosecuted. It's not that they don't want to. It's not that right. law enforcement doesn't want to. It's just that... For those who find them, you know, then the restitution. And then you have to get that person to pay. <laughs> and, and one of the things that, that I've, I've heard um, district attorneys say when they're training other district attorneys is when you're um, bringing an identity theft case to court, to get an order for restitution, even if there's no money right then, and get that filed with the court and recorded, because at some point, that thief may have money and you want to be able to go back and get it. So even yes. if there isn't any money right now, you need to still go after it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. What else? Uh, SB 602, the Reader Privacy Act by by uh, Senator Yee. Um, this is a national first. Uh, what, what it does is it it brings the, the, the free expression First Amendment protections that we currently have in statute over library records. So it's, that's, those records are considered confidential. Um, it brings it to our reading records, and, and the way that, that it's described in the, in the new law is it's the providers of book services. So this includes both online things like Google Books, Kindle, Kindle yeah, yeah. and, you know, um, uh, oh, I was going to say Amazon. Borders. No, uh, Amazon. Well, they're Barnes all and Noble. <laughs> yeah, they're all online. Yeah, but well, the ones that are and aren't. It, it include it covers both. Right. And so it essentially requires a state government or law enforcement uh, person requesting the, the the reading records to uh, have probable cause, have a court order. Yeah, warrant yeah, yep. for it. Yeah, well, it, a subpoena rather. Yeah. Yeah, but perfect yeah, with a probable cause standard. So that. That that is good news. That it does not, of course, get in the way of federal law enforcement under the Patriot Act, but it pro- provides some additional statutory protections to right. back up our constitutional rights. Right, and and so many people don't even go to the library anymore, unfortunately, because they're just going online or they're downloading books. Yeah. And the good thing about the library, just to put in a pitch, is that they are using online in a very neat way. They for. When you want to get a book from your library, if you go onto your library website, you say what book you want. They will get it from whatever library in the region it's available, send you an email when it's there. You just go down and pick it up. It's wonderful. It's very neat. So libraries are still worth worth going to. And I, I still like the books in my hand. I, I just like to be able to, to read wherever I want to read and have it in my hand and turn the page and I, I know that everybody's using Kindles and they're highlighting and they're doing all these things. I saw people doing it in the swimming pool when I was on vacation, but I'm, I guess I'm an old fogey. I still like my book. I like them both. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like having the the ebooks for traveling. Yes, have a whole bunch of books with you without having to carry them around. Exactly, and of course searching. Yep. All is good. Yep.
So th- those are really the major bills. Um, we're going to we're updating the list that's on our website to indicate all of the ones that were enacted, and we'll have that all up um, in December. Yep. And I just want to tell people, if you're listening in, we are speaking with a wonderful privacy expert, of a dear friend, and the chi- the chief of the California Office of Privacy Protection. And they have a wonderful website just filled with fact sheets and recommended practices, wonderful stuff. And you can go to privacy.ca.gov to get this. So, Joan, what about legislation that's pending? What's going on? Well, there, there are a couple that, that were introduced in the past year that, that, didn't, that, that, that became two-year bills, as they say, that, that will be back again in January that are, that are of interest. Um, one of them is uh, Senate Bill 761, uh, Senator Lowenthal, about online behavioral tracking. Um, it's a, this is a challenging one. It's a... You know what what that what that means is um, the way that websites it's, it's the sort of business model of 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 the internet um, websites are collecting through kind of hidden software information on you tracking you as you move across the web in order to sell that information to advertisers to advertise targeted advertising to you and this bill. Uh, SB 761 is an attempt to give people the right to say, no, don't do that. Do not track, kind of modeled on do not um, call. Right. Uh, tech- technologically, perhaps a little little different and uh, quite challenging in a number of reasons, including regulating the Internet from California. But it's a, it should get a lot of attention in the, because people are concerned about this issue. Right, and I mean they've even been talking about this in at the Federal Trade Commission, yeah. and yeah, so but- this is a, a real hot topic, and it's it's noteworthy that California, which is always the leader, is is attempting to do their own legislation. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, and then the other one is on a topic that is near and dear to us, and that is uh, AB eight forty six by Assem- Assembly Member. Bonilla about foster child identity theft, and this bill is a bill to clean up an existing law to make it more workable. The existing law is intended to um, uh, protect foster children from, upon emancipation, discovering suddenly that they can't rent an apartment or get a student loan because they have bad credit when, in fact, of course, they shouldn't have any kind of credit records at all because they're children. Right. So that that bill will will be back, and um, we're hoping it. What was the opposition to that one? There's concern about the possible cost to the State Department of Social Services for implementing it. Oh, to helping these kids. To get their lives back. To, to, to the role that they would have to play rather than having the counties do it. Oh, I see. And, and um, what we did, because this, this issue has, has uh, this, this, the concept of this bill of cleaning up the existing law, which is really not feasible, um, has been something, something that's been going on for a couple of years, and the bill has been vetoed in the past. And... We did a pilot project 
to test out exactly how it could how it could and should work to do this. And so, by the conclusion of our pilot project, uh, we were able to show that the the costs to uh, the whether it's the county or the state of of requesting the credit reports are not very significant. So we think that'll help as we move forward. Well, especially if you're a victim of identity theft, you're supposed to get those. Well, but as 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 you know, as an adult, that works very nicely. You can even do it online. As a child, uh, since since the the challenge, it's much harder for a parent or anybody to get a child's um, credit report because they shouldn't have one in the first place. And as right. you know, the way that the credit reporting system works is in order to get your credit report, whether you're doing it online through the mail or whatever, they have to make sure it's you because it's against law and clearly not a good idea for them to for a credit report for your credit report to go to somebody else. So they have to authenticate who you are and the address and and usually it, the your the, social security number, your right. name, your address. But then you are asked questions to further authenticate you because we know that unfortunately a number of people can know our name, our address, and even our social security number. Right. So then it asks you questions based on the records in the file. Uh, that that you should know the answers to if you're who you say you are. So it might, for example, say which of the following uh, companies holds your uh, car loan, and right. then it lists five or six, and one of them's none of the above. Well, if if someone has created records using a child's social security number, the child, the parent, whoever is doing the check for the child isn't going to know the answers to those questions. Exactly. Because they don't have a car loan. And, and because the, the fraudster made it up. Yes. But, yeah. But the, but the reality is if they are, if let's say they turn 16 and they want to go and buy a car or they want to yeah. get credit and they're denied, that at that point they can... That if they yes, can get a copy, at that point, but yes. to check it in advance. No, 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 not in advance. But yeah. once they find out that they're a victim and they know about it, yes. then they can get it for free right then and there, and then they can write the letters and do yes. it. But they, but you know, a foster child isn't going to be able to write all the letters and no, do and that, all the that things. Was the point. So what yeah. we did was we worked with the, our pilot project was with LA County. So the LA County Department of Children and Family Services sent two thousand one hundred and ten. 16 and 17 year old foster kids information to the credit reporting agencies and then we got back the the credit records that were found and it turned out that uh 5% of those kids had credit reports yep and none of them should because right. because with very limited exceptions minors can't enter into contacts contracts for credit exactly so at the very least it was the result of errors and potentially of identity theft. So we went through all of those records. We contacted the creditors and, and the debt collectors, since three-quarters of them were old, like they were on average two or three years old, when the, so the kids were even younger when the accounts were opened, and, and three-quarters of them were in, were be, it had been sent to debt collectors already. Oh. And we were able to get those all eliminated from their records. Right. So that those kids, when they are emancipated from foster care, at least won't have that strike against them. So you had a pretty large percentage of kids that really were already either victims or had a merged file, right? Yes. Yes, we did. 5% had full cre had credit reports that were clearly identified with them, that, and there were, with the ex 
there was a total of nearly 250 different accounts among these 104 kids. Um, Which is a much higher percentage than than children who are not foster children. Well, I don't think we really know. There there has not been a lot of really good research on child victims of identity theft, which isn't surprising. Right. The the way that most of the big nationwide surveys on identity theft are are done is, you know, it's consumer surveys, and most adults don't know whether or not their children are victims. Right. And a lot of them don't even know if they are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, we are out of time. Do you believe this, Joan? We have to have you back again because this is, I know you did such great work on this foster care program and and seeing which kids had credit reports and were victims of identity theft. So we think you are wonderful, Joan McNabb. We're going to send people to privacy.ca.gov and we will have you back again. Great. Thanks, Mari. Okay. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. for Privacy Piracy. And go to our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy and write us emails about what's important to you. Look at our upcoming guests, listen to archived interviews, and thank you for joining us. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.